Hello everyone, it's February 9th, 2021. So why did SN9 do a landing pad belly flop? We don't really know yet. So yeah, we're gonna make some guesses, but also discuss what we do know. Also, something else worth knowing, Firefly is getting into the moon landing business. So let's get into all of that and lift off. We've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 296 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So I guess at the top of the show, we wanted to talk about uh, Hans Kanigsman. He will be retiring. Mm. And uh, yeah, that's kind of sad to see him go because he's such a cool guy. He's the only, I guess you could say, higher up at SpaceX who I saw in person at a press conference years ago mm. when I went down to Kennedy Space Center. So for anyone who doesn't know, his job or his role there was as president of Mission Assurance. I kind of forget how you actually need somebody in that role, considering how crazy SpaceX can be, that he's kind of the guy who just, you know, makes sure that it actually gets done. I think of yeah. him as that kind of person, you know, like, hey, yeah. we have a job to do. Let's do that specific thing. Yeah, he's the person responsible for when you refer to Falcon 9 flights as boring now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he's uh, he's going to be retiring and, he, and he'll be replaced uh, with Bill Gerstenmaier, which was a surprise to me. He used to be the former NASA Associate Administrator for Human Exploration. And I know that because I'm reading it right now off Wikipedia. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to repeat it. <laughs> Yeah, that kind of surprised me because we were talking about just before we recorded that, at least to me, he doesn't seem like the kind of fit for SpaceX that I might have thought because he's, you know, you know, he's just a NASA person. And I, and I don't think of SpaceX as, you know, hiring too many NASA people. I mean, they do hire astronauts. So there is that, but I, I feel like that's a little bit different. Well, may, maybe being in a role of flight reliability is something that's a little mm. more kind of conservative and at the pace of a, uh, a long time, you know, former NASA official. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, not always pushing the envelope, just really trying to maybe, you know, rein in the more, uh, <laughs> the more, uh, you know, the people at the, the front who are really kind of pushing and pushing and pushing. Exactly. The kind of people who maybe, you know, might not take like the FAA regulations too seriously. So <laughs> this is the kind of guy who makes sure that all those ducks are in a row. I just can't get over the fact that he looks like my coordinator at work. Gerstenmeier or... Gerstenmeier, uh... yeah. Yeah, my, my coordinator's got blazingly white hair, big white... Well, not a big white mustache, but a white mustache, mm. and just like very much the same look. <laughs> it's kind of mm -hmm. weird. Something else I should mention at the top of the show, um, I bought enamel pins for the podcast, what, like a year ago now? I, oh, actually, it would have been two years ago. I bought them to be able to take to IAC in 2019. Yeah. And so I haven't been, uh, I haven't put them on the website um, and I haven't been sending them out because they're a little too big to put in an envelope. Um, I mean, they, they fit in the envelope because they're, I don't know, they're like a centimeter across, but they're so thick um, that it makes the envelope um, mm. unmachinable. They can't do uh, automated sorting. And so I thought that that pushed them out of, uh, out of the class and into first class. So I would have to pay, you know, way more than just putting stamps on there. And, uh, a listener asked, uh, if they were available. And I was like, yeah, let me, let me just try shipping one to you. And, and if, you know, if the envelope gets returned, no big deal. I'll just take it out and ship it back out. And, um, that was about a month ago. And I, <laughs> I had lost the pins, uh, just, I had this big bag and they were, they made it here to Pennsylvania. I just didn't know which box they were in. So I ended up mm. um, finding them recently. And so, uh, I started looking into, or, you know, I actually threw one in an envelope. I was like, okay, I'm going to ship, ship this out to this guy and, and see if it, if it works. And I don't know, I just got kind of paranoid and I started doing more research and I finally found the resource on USPS's website that I needed. Turns out all you have to do is put extra postage on. You can keep it in second class. Um, it's just like 75 cents uh, has to go to um, a non-machinable surcharge. So I bought a bunch of non-machinable stamps. They're stamps that are the exact they, they act like forever stamps, but they're a higher denomination just to go towards non-machinable. Uh -huh. um, so now I can send these out uh, for 75 cents extra. <laughs> That's all it costs. Yay. So my intention is to gather up all of the merch that goes in the mini merch pack and take some nice photos because um, I have yet to take like a group photo, put it up on the website, update the description. Um, I'll have to update the price for shipping a little bit then I can go ahead and, and get these guys ready to go. So if you want 
a pin just hang off until I'm able to do that. I'm waiting for uh, my new shipping supplies. I bought new envelopes and whatnot because I had pre-printed all uh, of my old envelopes um, with my old address. And so I'm getting new envelopes. They're like pre-stamped, you know, really easy to use mm-hmm. envelopes. All that is hopefully going to be happening on Tuesday. Um, so, you know, don't hold me to it. I'm, I'm bad at <laughs> meeting timelines, <laughs> but if you're interested in a pin, um, just go ahead and hold off until then. If you just want a pin and you like, if you've already bought a merch pack and you just want the pin, put in your order now and, and let me know. Um, there should be like a, a comment section or something, or if that's not there, just send me an email and I will ship you out a pin on its own. And that way you can get it for a lower cost before I go and update everything. Um, we can only have one item it, with our Squarespace plan. We only get one item in the store. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so I can, I can fake it with, uh, with like shipping options. So you like buy the thing and then pick the shipping option that adds the right amount of postage, but that's ridiculous. You know what? Forget that. It, it's only going to be more expensive by 75 cents. Um, when the price goes up. So if you're interested, shoot me an email and I'll give, I'll figure out what the amount should be. And I will, uh, I'll let you PayPal me the money and I'll just ship uh, the enamel pin on its own. They're really nice pins. Yeah, I like them. In the news, uh, Starship, uh, let's talk about Starship Serial Number 9, which uh, was preparing to launch as I was doing the editing for last week's episode, and I actually caught it live, so that was cool. I wasn't sure that I was going to just because I don't want to hang out and watch forever, and you, and like you never know exactly when it's going to launch. So, ah. um, I mean, there, you know, there's always delays and so forth, but um, it was like... T minus 15 minutes and I sat, I watched and it was very cool. And they topped off the, the whole event with a giant explosion at the end, which I actually was <laughs> not expecting. Um, <laughs> so that was fun. I was digging my car out of the snow at the time. I actually missed takeoff live, but managed to catch the, uh, landing. We'll call it live. I, I saw our discord started blowing up and on my phone notifications like, Oh shit. <laughs> and so I, I then, you know, rushed and tried to find a, a live stream and I had missed the, the, take off but it was a really good launch and like everything went so well that i was kind of surprised by the big explosion but i mean i guess not because it's a very difficult thing to do but um i guess the reason why i mentioned that you know this was you know a whole week ago was just that i thought that there would be some news to talk about it now so i was kind of (laughs) glad that we had a whole week but there really isn't a lot to say just yet um and i suspect that that's because elon musk is on a twitter break although he could always reveal any news he wants to some other by some other means but um, I don't know if that's the real reason. So it had a good launch to its 10-kilometer apogee, and it did the whole flip maneuver, which I don't know if I mentioned it. I think we mentioned this the last time that we saw number eight, but it looks so surreal to watch it do that because it looks mm. like it's – I don't know if it's still – I mean, it can't be truly hovering during you know that tilt in its axis because it is going to lose some of the downward thrust and it's hard to tell you know Mm -hmm. if it's like you know falling or what but it just looks like it's just turning in the air like a flying saucer or something it's just weird Mm -hmm. to watch i just think that that looks so cool just just watching that always blows my mind that's probably the Mm -hmm. coolest thing of all but um and uh last launch with with number eight we had some speculation about how it's supposed to do that subsonic re-entry and that the nose was tilted downward a little bit and I think this time it was less so, or at least for a lesser amount of time that they were able to straighten it out. But I don't remember if that's truly the case because I'm, you know, pretty bad at recalling things. So, um, but it looked like they kind of worked out how to use those fins and get that thing pretty much dead horizontal with the horizon. Are you talking about the horizontal during the belly flop or the horizontal yeah. when it well, the horizontal the at- flopped? Because it was more horizontal than SN8 <laughs> in that case as well. <laughs> well, yeah, definitely so there. But I was just talking about during the descent, mm-hmm. the nose was not pitched down like it was last time. Mm-hmm. At least I think so because last time we had talked about it. So I'm trying to remember if that was indeed the case or 
um, what had happened because uh, I think that we were kind of confused as to whether it actually was in that orientation or if it was just a camera, which I, I didn't yeah, think right, that it yeah. was. Yeah, right. Yeah, not having uh, you know the horizon or much of a you know a sense of reference. Yeah, no, I, I yeah, I don't know. It, it definitely I saw a like... good video that was a little bit of a distance. I don't remember it. I'm trying to find it. I don't remember it looking like um, like it was actually nose down. But yeah, most of the most of the footage was so out of context that it. It was hard to tell. Well, I think it was nose down for at least some period of time. I, I think it was nose down initially, but they, um, yeah, they, they did bring the nose up and did some lateral movement just from the lifting body. Um, I found the, yeah, I was looking at the, um, the SpaceX's on YouTube. You could just tell, even if it's kind of a little ambiguous. Just by not only you know that it over it overcompensated when it went towards the belly flop because it then oh, pitched yeah. back up a bit afterwards. Yeah, that is that is way nose down, isn't it? I I didn't even think about it in that. Like I kind of <laughs> tend to discount anything that I see with no horizon. And yeah, you're you're absolutely right. That's really so. It looks like it might have gotten to horizontal before it ignited its engines. Yeah, I think it was pretty darn near horizontal. Mm -hmm. relit its engines so david so your point is that basically you know maybe sn9 was in a sense more successful than sn8 in the sense of writing itself for that arrow breaking maneuver yeah yeah I, I had forgotten about the yeah about it looking like it yeah it had its nose pointed down a little bit i, I wouldn't even say a little bit <laughs> it was pointed down a lot of it <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> but uh, the landing, uh, that was not mm. improved upon. <laughs> that that was also more horizontal than SNA. True. And that's because they just were down a whole engine. So last launch, you know, mm. they had the two engines relight. This time it was just one. Um, and so this is obviously where all the speculation comes in. So like what happened there? I don't know. So from the video, you can see it try to relight. And I mean, you, you see some exhaust. I wouldn't even call it necessarily thrust per se but you know hmm. something comes out of the engine uh, some sputtering yeah you know. some sputtering but you never get any mock diamonds like you know it's not full thrust and then it just goes out completely and obviously the starship is not able to reorient itself and uh, it crashes and one thing that people were pointing out was um, a bit of fire around the very top of the engine um, hmm. that engine in particular but I was wondering is that just, you know, the unburnt oxygen, which you often get with launches like this, because, you know, there's always that little bit of a void there. Not a void, but, you know, what's what I'm looking for. You kind of get eddies. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, it doesn't look very concerning. I mean, the, the fire is really high up, but I mean, I don't. I don't think it's that concerning, to be honest. It just doesn't. It, do, well, it doesn't look. Things already. Let's say we've already seen other things catch on fire. Yeah. On the mm -hmm. you know, interior of the skirt during ascent on SN8 in particular, mm -hmm. right? I remember. Yeah. And then also on the. Descent for nine. Right. See that as well. That was kind of my thinking too, that, you know, this might not be anything to be concerned about. It just didn't look any worse than, you know, previous launches, but clearly something went wrong with the engine. And so it, mm -hmm. I mean, I think that the header tank worked correctly because that other engine came on. So like maybe it's not a problem with the propellant, but rather the engine itself. That was my thinking. Uh, so maybe it's just that these Raptors and I, I mean, they've done so many test fires and so on and so forth that I think mm -hmm. that they have them. You know that they have it pretty well down, but like maybe this was just a failing Raptor engine. Did SN9 have a um when we were waiting for the build up, uh, the, like the build up to the launch, or the flight? Didn't they have a uh, an engine anomaly that they had to, that basically pushed it back a short bit of time, or am I misremembering that? Because right, I mean it's tough to keep track. There's just so many things coming out of mm -hmm, you know yeah. Boca Chica and like there's people not only not only is there a lot of stuff going on, but people are following it so carefully and so detailed that it's hard to just it's a flood of information and everything but I, I almost feel like and I could be misremembering but um that there was you know while it was still on the stand but like still a good week before it actually flew they basically were like oh we got you know something about the engines we got to swap them out or you know do something uh maybe not swap them out but like I feel like there was some kind of issue related to the engines uh during one of their tests maybe I should google that before I just spread lies on the internet <laughs> okay thanks <laughs> Um, two Raptors were swapped. Okay. That does lend some credence to the idea that maybe these engines are a, a little bit just a little bit testy. So, mm. so even though I said that Elon Musk is on a Twitter break, there was at least uh, one tweet that he said in response to Tim Dodd, the everyday astronaut. He said that it was foolish of us to not start three engines and immediately shut down 
uh, just one as two are needed to land. So like maybe restart all three engines and then shut down whichever one perhaps, well, you know, if, if there's one that's having trouble, then obviously that's well, the one you I, shut down. I can, I can actually elaborate a little more on this. So okay. what's interesting is that reply to Tim Dodd was actually further down in the conversation. Uh, earlier, somebody had asked uh, Elon why they only started up two engines instead of all three. And, um, and so he was kind of going, well, you know, we can't land with three engines. It's just too, mm-hmm. the margins are just too narrow. Um, we can't, the, the lower you throttle the engines, the more chance of a flame out there is. And it's just, it's not good. So we're just going to, uh, fire two engines and, and land that way. And somebody said, well, why don't you start up all three, pick the best two and drop one of them? And he said, because we were too dumb. <laughs> And Tim Dodd came back and, and Tim was like, no, you're not dumb. And he's like, no, no, no. It, it was foolish to not do an, uh, an additional ignition cycle in exchange for, um, being safe. And so what they're, they're actually going to, uh, make this software change before SN10. So SN10 will exhibit this behavior. But what they're going to do is light up all three. And David, like you said, if one of them is having issues, that'll be the one that they shut down. But. If all three of them are good, the one that gets shut down will be the one on top because it'll have the least uh, moment arm for rotation in that axis, which is pretty mm-hmm. clever. Um, that, that's that's kind of fun. That's not something that I had really uh, thought of as as being helpful, but it, it makes total sense. Yeah, because I had read that thread as well, and I thought initially that, well, I, I guess kind of foolishly, I was like, well, if that's such a good idea, then they would have thought of it. But actually, I guess, I mean, I'm sure it was a little bit tongue in cheek, but perhaps, you know, like Musk was being kind of serious in that, yeah, that was kind of an oversight on their part that they could have started all three engines and then just shut one down. But that does add some complexity, which, you know, probably wouldn't be seen as being necessary so long as you have reliable mm-hmm. engines. I, I think the wear and tear on the engines is more important. Well, just you mean just because of an additional restart that that's going to yep. add? I mean, well, yeah, it yeah. does. But I mean, these are meant to fly quite a bit. So I would think. Well, that- and that's the, that's the other thing. Uh, it's interesting to me that they overlooked this. And that, that definitely seems to be what, what happened here. Um, I, I'll bet that the reason they overlooked it is because they have been designing these engines with reuse in mind the whole time. And, you know, uh, Merlin was also developed with reuse in mind, but they didn't have the experience back then that they do now. And, and I wonder if they were just a little, maybe not even overconfident. Uh, would be the right word, but maybe they were so locked into a way of thinking, um, which was we can restart these whenever we want. Um, we can rely on these engines. They're, you know, they've proven to be pretty good engines on the test pad and it never even occurred to them to hedge their bets in that way. Yeah. Stye in the chat says normalization. Um, kind of, kind of an interesting, maybe a, a form of group think, you know, <laughs> happening. Yeah. There. So, and, and, you know, the fact that they did such incredibly rapid development, um, through all of, uh, Starship's life, you know, that, that's also really pushing the limits of what humans can do in, in terms of engineering. I, I think, I, I expect maybe. So David, in the notes, you say that there was a lot of leftover locks. Is that in contrast to uh, methane? Well, first off, just to be clear, I'm not saying that the leftover locks is an anomaly. I mean, they're going to have some. So I don't mean that there's more than there should be. But no, I was just saying that, well, it's kind of hard to tell, but they did have an infrared camera. And so you can see quite a bit of it. In fact, you don't even need the infrared camera. But oh, yeah, right. you can see a lot of locks, you know, that's coming out of the header tank. When, when, it, when it crashed. Yeah, right. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you if you looked at the if you looked at the the crash in infrared, you could see that what was spilling out in one direction was very cold. Yeah, and thus yeah, you know. a whole bunch of it. But um, in contrast to the methane, actually, I was not saying that, but uh, that does bring up a good point because the methane, I imagine, would be well, I mean, not quite as cold and therefore not as visible. And I guess it just would have burnt. You know, I mean, I, I'm I'm assuming that, that that was most of the explosion, but there was I guess maybe more leftover locks, or maybe it was just that it was more visible. I'm not sure. Sure. And Colin in the chat, you know, brings up a good bit of logic. Since they were intending to fire the two engines and mm-hmm. only one fired, then even like all things being equal, we should have expected leftover 
um, locks and methane for that matter. Since it was just in the final seconds, I don't think it would have been that big of a difference. I mean, it, it might have been actually. I don't know. Exactly what the flow rate is for yeah, the final. Yeah. Well, I mean, and also, you know, the, the final seconds would have been a little, it would have been more final seconds if it actually True. did yeah. like the second engine too. <laughs> would have slowed down a bit. That is a good point. I mean, we're looking at, because had it landed, it would have been you know, ignited for, well, I don't know how much longer, probably not too much because it it is still kind of a hover slam situation. I mean, it's mm-hmm, not going to mm-hmm. be, you know, picking a spot and then setting down gently. Oh, great. And, and the, uh, the infrared footage, um, is coming from Lab Padre. I think so. so yeah. Uh, go check that out. It's pretty cool. We'll have that in the show notes. Yeah. Link in the show notes. Just be happy SN10, you know, at least didn't suffer any critical damage or uh, obvious damage. That one was not far away, and I was watching some of the debris, you know, that was coming off of the explosion, and wondering, is it going to hit it? Is it going to hit it? And I don't think that anything big did, at least. So I'm sure there was some small impacts, but because they do have the uh, the tiles on there too, so even mm-hmm. you know, you could imagine even small con- like I mean, even without the tiles, but like even small contact that we can't see when we're zoomed out the way we are, um, could be enough for them to have to refurbish 10, super serial number 10 a little bit before they uh, do its flight, which is next. And when's that going to be? And so that's going to be later on this month, surprisingly, mm-hmm. or maybe unsurprisingly. So I, I guess mm-hmm. there was no real damage. And this one is going to be with all three engines lighting. So that's a, I mean, to me, it seems like, I, I guess not a huge change, but like, okay, you know, they're making that pivot and they're doing it quickly. And, that, and now they have this whole new, whole new landing sequence where they relight a whole engine and then they shut one of them down. So that seems like it might not be as easy as it sounds to me. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm kind of impressed that they can do that in less than a month. Yeah. Sorry. I was just typing in the chat. I don't know. I could yell to my, uh, echo dot. <laughs> right. Didn't I hear it was like over 200 miles per hour when it hit? Oh, yeah. Right. I think and sound yeah. speed is 300 ish meters per second. If I remember correctly. Yeah. Term- terminal velocity is 300 to 400 kilometers per hour initially. Just because the air is thin at the top, and then as it comes, as it gets down, it gets down to about 250 kilometers an hour when it's in belly flop with the fins extended. But I mean, it, it's it's fantastic to be able to bring this whole thing down through the atmosphere. <laughs> you know, it, that that's a quick fall, but like you then light up the engines and you land it. That's that's kind of crazy. You know, no, uh, no parachutes mean you're, you're falling fast the whole time. And that's, and that's the thing that, you know, if you're unfamiliar with this, it looks like there's just been two terrible failures in a row. You know what I mean? But like being able to do that maneuver, uh, and do it successfully, cause right, this is not something that's done with rocket stages. And so the fact that they can slow it down and just, you know, have some, I guess engine uh, and previously tank-related issues that just need to be worked out before they can really stick the landing. Um, it's still great to see. You know, these are these tests, right? They're more successful than they are unsuccessful. And, and remember, the landing is the least emphasized part of this whole thing. And like, clearly, yeah. when it did its its pitch over after shutdown, something had changed in the way that they in the way that they were doing it. Because it seems like they actually made a more aggressive pitch over, and that's why it went so far nose down and had to correct itself back up. But maybe they did that intentionally, and they were um, pushing the kind of the operational envelope of their uh, of their fins and the aerodynamic mm. control, and they wanted to you know put into a more extreme situation to see better how Jeez. it <laughs> brought itself back up. I was wondering if maybe I don't know I don't know enough of how rockets work. Um, is it possible though that like it was anticipating that second engine lighting, so it was a more aggressive pitch because it thought it was going to have more thrust at the same time, but because it didn't, it wound up. Uh, I meant, I meant at the top of the arc when it got oh, all the, the way up to apoapsis and shut down oh, its engines right, right, right. and pitched right. over. Because, because that's the that's the sandbox time, right? <laughs> you've got you've got this whole distance that you can play around before you really have to get serious about you know the earth rushing up at you okay when when you heard my reaction like whoa really like <laughs> before that was me thinking that you were suggesting they were doing a more aggressive pitch for the landing yeah. burn yeah that Which that should be- i'm glad that you were surprised at that understanding because that <laughs> that was not my intention <laughs> uh so then finally before we move on um we got a little bit of an update on the FAA violation. Um, spacenews.com, uh, joined Virgin reporting, uh, the violation. And so we get a little more information. Uh, Space News says that the, oh, actually, 
um, they, they quoted FAA directly. FAA actually made a statement. Um, they said that, um, they were looking for a waiver request or they, they had made a waiver request. Last week we called it, uh, some sort of unknown license alteration. Turns out what they were doing was asking for a waiver, um, that would allow them to exceed the maximum public risk. And so, um, the way that it works, the FAA's demands right now are if you've got a reusable vehicle when you're landing it, um, you have to have a, a public risk, a risk to bystanders, risk to the public that's less than one casualty per 10,000 launches. And, and, you know, obviously one failure per 10,000 launches is uh, incredibly high for uh, a launch vehicle itself. But in this case, we're talking about risk to the public, not risk to the, to the payload. And so SpaceX asked for a waiver because, uh, they saw the possibility of far field blast overpressure, which basically means when this thing explodes, uh, the, the pressure wave that it sends out could do some damage to surrounding structures and to, to people in the area. I'm not a hundred percent, but I, I can't even guess why uh, this was uh, a risk that they foresaw um, and, and why it would be different for this vehicle as opposed to other vehicles. Um, but they, they put in the waiver request. Uh, FAA was still processing it and FAA had not approved it um, when SN8 flew. Um, basically, SpaceX said, we don't care if, <laughs> if you want <laughs> us to do this or not. We're going to do it anyway. And and that's why FAA started an investigation. Definitely does not seem like a smart thing to do as a space company. I understand that they're trying to move quickly, but it, whether or not this risk is justified, it's kind of crazy to me that they decided to fly without FAA signing off. And um, one of the FAA higher ups actually came out and said, well, if we let this happen with no repercussions, that changes the entire industry. You know, the, the entire industry now is, is working on, uh, the honor system. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And that, and that's just silly. We, we actually have to enforce this. And, uh, that official did say, you know, we, we have, um, different enforcement mechanisms that we can, uh, inflict or that we can apply to the situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I hope they do. I hope we get to dig in a little bit more and, and see what regulatory, uh, processes actually were in force here. Um, but it's worth pointing out that SN9 was flown in compliance. Uh, and, uh, we have every expectation that SN10 will be flown in compliance as well. Um, it sounds like SN9, um, did fly under this waiver. So whatever the issue was, doesn't seem like it was, you know, an absolutely crazy, no, you can never do that kind of thing. Just like, mm-hmm. yeah, you have to wait for FAA to approve it. Now, Ben, do you think maybe this far field blast overpressure is not so much an issue for this vehicle, but so, but are there any other launch pads that are this close to like just civilians living in houses, you know, just like straight up normal residential areas? Maybe that's the reason why um, you can get away with with this elsewhere, generally? Maybe. My my expectation, though, is that since they're applying for a waiver, it's a new issue that was identified and not something inherent in the launch site and the proximity of Boca Chica. You don't think, though, that, that it is because it is closer to civilians? Because, I mean, this is not like most other places where you would launch a rocket or even test one, like if you look at Stennis. I don't know how far it is, but it's got to be pretty far away from, you know, like any civilian populations. I mean, it's, you know, a big government facility, I think. I mean, I don't know. This just seems a lot and, closer. And and, and but, think about it too, right? SN8 was the first time you took one of these vehicles to 10 kilometers and brought it down that hard. You know what I mean? And so that's when this waiver appeared. So you could fly... Hop, you could do hops, you could do, you know, tankings and untankings, but once you start sending things up to 10 kilometers and slamming them into the ground and exploding, then you need the waiver because that's, that's going to be And why wasn't, why wasn't the license written like that to begin with? There, there was a change that happened, um, a, like a, a change in SpaceX's expectation or their knowledge of the vehicle. Um, that caused them to go and amend their original license. Yeah, that's what that's what I had read too. It, like I, yeah. I, yeah, when I was reading it, there there was um that they, I feel like I had read somewhere that they didn't uh, characterize 
the explosion adequately for them. And that kind of is what characterize a possible explosion, right? A possible explosion. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's interesting. (laughs) Hopefully we'll find out more later. All right. Well, that's, uh, that's our SpaceX, uh, rant for a little bit. (laughs) Let's talk about some, (laughs) some small launchers now, huh? So Firefly back in the news. Um, we haven't talked about them in a while, but they have a really cool CLPS contract, which is the, the lunar lunar payload commercial services. yeah i couldn't remember <laughs> i couldn't remember what that c stood for yeah uh the commercial lunar payload services contract um so this is a 93.3 million dollar award so this is a pretty big get for them as i say um and it seems a little bit um i, I guess this is a kind of a change for them because i mean we had Going back to the second episode, I think we ever recorded or something like that when we interviewed them. They were a launch vehicle, like, you know, they built rockets. Um, this is a, a mm. lunar lander, so this is kind of different, huh? Yeah, and they won't even use their own rocket as it happens. Yeah, well, they're still looking for one, which obviously it's not going to be one of theirs. Mm-hmm. So, uh, right, so this is going to be a, a mission in 2023 to uh, Mare Mari which is the Sea of Crises, which is a little ominous for a, yeah. uh, a lunar lander. But Wow, that's what that means. <laughs> Yeah, fingers crossed. Um, it's pretty cool. Like it, this, this one is uh, actually naked eye visible. So right, being a mare or sea, um, it's one of these black basalt flooded regions from earlier in the moon's history, and so it's kind of the one that's near the edge of the moon, and it's just. It's not connected to any of the other ones. It's its own very circular, noticeably isolated black patch just kind of sitting near the edge of the moon. And so, uh, I, I again, I always I feel like anytime we talk about the moon, I love that you can actually see where these things are going um, with your own eyes, uh, especially if you have a binoculars or a telescope. You can see them in a lot more detail. There's, there's a few neat things about this. And we've known about the payloads for a while, although I guess I haven't really looked at them as carefully as I did when I was... Uh, uh, looking at uh, exactly what Firefly was going to fly, but the uh, the total clips payload mass is 94 kilograms or 207 pounds, which interestingly enough leaves 50 kilograms still available uh, commercially. And so Firefly, if you go to their website, are kind of you know soliciting you know anyone that thinks uh, they got something you know any private company that wants to fly something to the moon in 2023. And so the uh, the official clips uh, payloads. Uh, Uh, There's 10 of them, and I'm just going to go through them real quick because they really are neat. And it's sort of like, this is just so good. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So the first one uh, is the uh, Regolith Adherence Characterization, or RAC. And um, this one is derived from the the MIS. I've never actually heard them uh, said. This is the Materials ISS Experiments. It's a a series of experiments where if you ever see something that looks like a color palette just being exposed to space Mm. on the uh, ISS, that's what this is. It looks like... uh, those kind of uh, water uh, water paintings. Uh, what, what, what's that called? Watermark painting that uh, uh, you did as a little kid? Wa- watercolor, like a watercolor water paint colors, palette. Yeah. yeah, watercolor, yeah, um, type uh, palette, you know, where you got the little, you know, discs that have different, essentially materials in them, but they're all different colors and uh, a different kind of look. And so um, that's something that, you know, is kind of going to characterize just what the regolith, you know, how it sticks to and adheres to different materials. Uh, so it's just going to be kind of exposed on the, uh, on one of the payload decks for the lander. And so, um, you know, that's obviously a huge thing. We know that messing around, like the Apollo astronauts in particular, right? Messing around with the regolith. It was a very, uh, unpleasant, uh, type of regolith mm-hmm. and then there's uh next generation lunar lunar retro reflectors which i know ben you love retro reflectors mm-hmm. and so i do I'm very excited about that <laughs> um there's the lunar environment heliospheric x-ray imager or lexi and this is going to be basically looking back towards the earth and imaging you know the earth's magnetospheric interaction with the solar wind uh from the vantage point of the moon uh and so you know you get a nice holistic uh view from there and so That'll be cool. There is the reconfigurable radiation tolerant computer system or RAD PC, which is all, uh, you know, this is a mix of science experiments as well as technology demos. And so this one is really, you know, more about just testing, uh, radiation, uh, resistance or, you know, uh, survivability of different, uh, computer hardware. And then, um, the lunar magnetotelluric sounder or LMS. And this, that, that is a mouthful right there, that magnetotelluric. Yeah. <laughs> what does that uh, I mean? had to look that up. So yeah, so I I'm not exact I'm not an EM guy, but I, I so if you do have a basically electromagnetic field interacting with uh rocks, you can basically see 
you know, what the resultant like output field is, right? So if you have some natural like electromagnetic field that goes into, you know, um, let's say the lunar mantle, um, what's going to come out is going to be, you know, the product of that interacting with the, uh, the rocks down there. This is something that, you know, uh, has been used in planetary science, but it's always been uh, magnetometers, right? And they, they basically can only measure the kind of uh, output uh, magnetic field. This is, I think, related to the same kind of way that we have been able to determine that there's uh, subsurface oceans on Europa and Ganymede by seeing the kind of induced magnetic field that comes out there. But magnetotelluric sounding is that you basically have the, the, the instrument output, or not output, it senses both electric and magnetic fields that are basically coming out from the, uh, in this case, the lunar mantle. And by having both of them, it doesn't need any kind of external information about the uh, electric field. It gets them both, essentially. And so it doesn't need to know about what the source field is going into the mantle. It can just do it all in one. So that's, I guess, uh, if I could try to boil it down to my uh, limited understanding, this thing is basically an all-in-one way to determine uh, different properties of the uh, lunar mantle based on the electromagnetic fields flowing through them naturally. Um, sounds groundbreaking uh, to me. There's also, uh, these are so great, and this one especially to uh, uh, the Lunar Instrumentation for Subsurface Thermal Exploration with Rapidity, uh, or LISTER. And so this is a heat flow probe. The HP cubed probe on Insight. The hopefully they're not using a mole on the moon. Um, I don't think they're going to be using a mole, especially how that went. But um, the heat flow. This is a heat flow probe to go two to three meters or seven to ten feet into the uh, lunar surface, and then just basically measure the the thermal gradient uh, from the base uh, uh, of the of the you know tetherish thing all the way to the uh, instrument itself. And so yeah, we basically have you know a similar instrument to. Uh, you know, what was on Insight. Although, again, uh, without a self-hammering mole, uh, I think uh, it'll be a little more successful. <laughs> yeah. And also, it doesn't have the Dura crust on Mars that'll be yeah. poking through, mm. uh, hopefully. And then finally, or not finally, but there's uh, four more. There's the Lunar Planet Vac, or LPV. This is a, uh, a science experiment that was funded by the Planetary Society, and it's essentially a uh, sample return. And so, or, or rather a sample collector. So there, there could be a potential Earth return, um, or uh, depending on, none of these other instruments are designed to analyze samples. So maybe one of these commercial payloads uh, potentially might want to take uh, the products, uh, the samples that Lunar Planet Vac collects. And uh, essentially one of the legs on the uh, lander is going to be replaced with a hollow chamber that'll lead up to the instrument. Uh, it's a really neat interest. It's a really uh neat and interesting looking uh, instrument. It looks kind of like the, the flywheel on a, uh, a fishing rod, um, but essentially, you know, it sucks up the, you know, the regolith into this little uh, collection area. And um, it was actually tested uh, in the Mojave de Desert back when uh, Maston Space Systems flew their, uh, <laughs> flew, uh, their Zodiac rocket. Uh, we're testing out in the desert there, and they actually put this uh, uh, planet vac on one of the legs. That's going to be great. There's the stereo cameras for lunar plume surface studies, or SCALPS 1.1, which is essentially uh, stereoscopic, uh, you know, cameras that are, you know, uh, basically going to be uh, capturing images and uh, video footage of uh, essentially during the descent, downward facing during the descent to kind of see what's going on with the plumes. And by having that uh, stereo imaging, they probably will be able to do 3D reconstructions. And as we know, right, especially when it comes to the human landing systems, the HLS ones, uh, we're really going to need to have a good idea of, you know, how to safely land on the moon. Um, with the, the regolith doing what it does. And then finally, the last two instruments, uh, last two payloads on board are the Electrodynamic Dust Shield, or EDS, which uses uh, what seems to me to be black magic, but they tell me it's uh, non-uniform electric fields that'll actually drive away dust particles. So it's a dust shield that doesn't actually, that, that uses an electromagnetic field to basically uh, pulse it away, I guess. Yeah, um, so Which magic. I guess makes sense given that they're, <laughs> I guess, you know, if the if the regolith is charged, right, we know that the regolith is quite charged. That's part of the reason why it's such a pain in the butt to interact with. Um, then I guess you could use your uh, electric field to kind of keep it away from you. And then finally, uh, the lunar GNSS receiver experiment, or LUGRE, which is a uh, lunar GPS. Uh, I could just boil it down that way, which is pretty wild. Um and so, yeah, uh, those are the payloads. What a mix, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's covering so many things. And it's also covering the types of things that you can just easily wrap your brain around. You know what I mean? Like, why don't we scoop up some soil? Why don't we put GPS on there? Why don't we uh, put an X-ray telescope? Why don't we put uh, retroreflectors? You know, like a heat flow probe. These, these are things that are really 
you know, you could just wrap your brain around them. It's very kind of down to earth in that sense. And then the lander itself is, uh, it's actually, it's a, it's a firefly, uh, it's a wholly uh, designed firefly lander. So basically, um, you may have, you might have heard, right? Firefly basically uh, uh, reached a uh, licensing agreement with Israel Aerospace Industries, um, and basically, uh, right, the 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 Bereshit lander to the moon, which uh, you know hit the moon a little too hard. They basically Firefly reached an agreement to be able to use a lot of that technology and you know make their own version of the Bereshit lander essentially. And they, they still are moving forward with that, but this is different. This blue ghost lander, uh, which is named after a rare species of Firefly, is Firefly's own, you know, in-house, uh, independently developed uh, lunar lander. As David uh, mentioned before, right, it's not going to launch on Firefly's own alpha rocket. Uh, it's still to be determined what the launch vehicle will be. Um, but as far as, you know, uh, getting the lander to the uh, uh, moon. Uh, the idea is that, you know, it can enter a uh, near polar capture orbit. They, you know, have designed this not just for this one CLIPS mission, but also for, you know, you know, future missions, including ones to the poles. And so one thing about the poles is that you can end up, you know, having a, a radio blackout for like, you know, a week or longer. This lander, so long as it's receiving uh, sunlight, can survive any kind of radio blackouts, no problem. Uh, just kind of collect the data and then, you know, uh, downlink it later. And um, that the payloads are attached to these four decks via either inserts or adapter plates. And it's pretty cool. Uh, we'll include an image in the show notes uh, from the payload user's guide. So, right, so you basically have, you know, um, the, these decks that are available uh, more towards the base of the vehicle, kind of around the edges, or uh, somewhat within the vehicle's uh, kind of, you know, main uh, chassis itself. Um, uh, the, there's a, there's a larger number of these smaller kind of decks available. And so you can kind of, you know, it's really going to be cool to see what this, uh, you can see renders of the, the blue ghost, but when you actually, you know, see it with the, the payloads attached, it's going to, it's going to look pretty awesome. And then I wanted to mention, um, this isn't the only Firefly hardware going to the moon. Um, the Blue Ghost lander is not capable of uh, getting from Leo to the moon's surface on its own. Um, so they also unveiled uh, SUV, the space utility vehicle, which is uh, sort of an all-purpose uh, on-orbit moving thing. Um, it, it's basically uh, fuel tanks, um, an engine, and some uh, solar panels. Their website describes it as being like a, a kickstage uh, for getting into different orbits, a, a CubeSat dispenser um, where you can put whatever payloads on it you want and, and put them into different orbits. Um, and then also as a, um, a as a constellation uh, dispenser. But right now it's uh, just going to be used in, in conjunction with Blue Ghost uh, and, and it'll uh, take it to the moon. So, uh, yeah, Blue, Blue Ghost is a type of uh, Firefly which is said to glow blue, but it doesn't. It's just that humans are really bad at discerning colors uh, in dim light. Um, it <laughs> does actually glow green. But uh, th it's such a great idea to name uh, one of your vehicles, like to pick a uh, naming scheme, like, mm -hmm. oh, we're going to name these after species of Firefly, and then to go with SUV. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh, well. All right, let's do three short and sweets. What is that first one, Ben? Dragon breaks a record. On February 7th, the Crew Dragon Resilience set a new record for the longest single mission by an American crewed spacecraft. The previous record was set in 1974 during a Skylab mission, which lasted 84 days. Last summer, the Demo-2 mission aboard Dragon Endeavor totaled 64 days, breaking the second-to-last Skylab duration of 59 days. This current mission to the ISS is targeting a return in late April or early May, which will put the mission around 165 days in total for a Crew Dragon on orbit, far exceeding any past duration records by the U.S. Next up, NanoRax's Bishop airlock powers on. After being launched to the ISS on December 6th, the Bishop Airlock, designed, owned, and operated by Nanorax, has been turned on for the first time. 
Within 10 to 15 seconds of powering on, it was clear the airlock was drawing power, but telemetry was not being received at NanoRack's Mission Control in Webster, Texas. The problem was diagnosed, and fortunately the data was being sent to Marshall Space Flight Center, showing that it was a ground issue preventing it from reaching the team in Webster, a much easier fix than an on-orbit malfunction. Next steps for Bishop include passing a leak check and being connected to the station's power, rather than the robotic arms, with astronauts expected to finish final configurations next week. And then lastly, OSIRIS-REx to return home. So after a successful mission at the asteroid Bennu, and last October collecting rocks, sand, and dust samples, OSIRIS-REx is scheduled to leave Bennu on May 10th for a two-year return voyage to Earth. The reason for this specific date is that it puts the spacecraft in the sweet spot where the departure maneuver consumes the least amount of onboard fuel. The departure maneuver will nevertheless require a delta V of 265 meters per second, making it the largest velocity change since OSIRIS-REx approached Bennu in October of 2018. Before returning, there will be the opportunity for one more flyby, allowing the spacecraft to make observations of its collection site on Bennu's surface in hopes of seeing how this affected the asteroid's surface. Questions, comments, and correction burns, and uh, also some timetables for the next Sea of Thieves. So we played Sea of Thieves, uh, what, like two weeks ago? Um, we're going to play yeah, it again. Two Fridays again. ago. Hmm. Yeah, we're going to play it again. Um, it's super fun. Um, mm-hmm. And Dennis and I just had a, a whale of a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, is that a joke? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's not It's not a very good one. It, it, was, it was a lot of fun. Um, we destroyed a couple ships. Um, of course, they were the ships that we were um, in possession of at the time. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, c- come play with us. Um, if anybody's interested, I can also probably stream it if you want to watch but not play. Um, so what you should do is you should get yourself a copy of the game if you don't have it. It's really easy to learn. If you're starting new, uh, be sure to start early so that you can uh, get through the little intro music or the, the intro mission. But then uh, hop on our Discord. We're hoping to start playing at uh, 1 p.m. Pacific, uh, 4 p.m. Eastern. Uh, we'll probably start a little late because that's the way things go. We <laughs> take a little longer to get things set up. Um, but yeah, come join us. It's, it's going to be fun. Uh, Dennis and I will be playing. Uh, David won't because David is not a gamer. I don't even think I can install it because I think we looked into it uh, a couple weeks ago and I'm like, I don't think that's even available on Linux. Yeah. You um, don't have any, yeah. you don't have a Windows. Uh, install on a hard drive somewhere, do you? You know, it's funny. I had that for about two weeks and then I was like, I don't need Windows. And that was like years ago. <laughs> I guess occasionally I do, but maybe at some point in the future, we'll also be able to do a role playing game or, you know, a, um, a traditional yeah. RPG, the mm. non, the yeah. non computer gamey type. We need to do those again. They're, they're just, they're very intense. <laughs> Like, I know it's like it a, it's so kind of a lot of work prep. on. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, mean it, that's how I would feel about playing a regular video game. It's like <laughs> Well, well, at least at least playing a regular video game doesn't take nearly as much uh setup time, right? Like actually True. writing these adventures takes hours. And it's fun and it's a good return on investment. It's just uh, I haven't felt inspired to do it and you need inspiration to be creative, so. So with that, we can move on to this week in spaceflight history. We have two winners, the Greek and Ben Howard. They get full credit, so they nailed it. Uh, the clue was, do you smell that? No. And I guess, Ben, you're going to tell us what is that smell, because I've been yes. waiting on the edge of my seat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Uh, this week in spaceflight history uh, is the 10th of February, 2001. Uh, there was an ammonia leak uh, during STS-98's first spacewalk. So let me um, go back in history a little bit more, um, just to uh, give us some historical context. So this is during the construction of ISS. Um, and this is, uh, I think, the seventh uh, construction mission to ISS. Um, Zarya launched in November of 98. Then STS-88 brought up Unity and the first two PMAs, PMA-1 and PMA-2, uh, in December of 97. Uh, Zvezda launched in July of 2000. STS-92 brought up uh, the Z1 truss and PMA-3 in October of 2000. Um, Soyuz uh, TM-31 uh, brought up Expedition 1 on November uh, in November of 2000. That, that's not that's not exactly a construction mission. That's just a Soyuz. And then um, 
uh, STS 97 brought up the P6 truss segment of November, uh, 2000. Um, so that would make STS 98 the sixth construction mission. So just kind of imagine what ISS looks like at this point. Uh, you've got Zarya and Zvezda taking up the bulk of the, uh, of the volume. Like when you look at ISS at this point, it's mostly Zarya and Zvezda. Then there's a little PMA, uh, between, uh, Zvezda, uh, sorry, between Zarya and Unity. And then there's little tiny Unity. Uh, sticking out in front. Um, and then when shuttle came up, the, uh, solar arrays on P6, uh, were retracted, I believe. I don't, I don't think that they, I think they retracted them before, um, these, uh, construction missions. If you're having a hard time, uh, imagining these, we will have photos and diagrams in the show notes. Um, but, you know, just there, there's not a lot of, of ISS at this point. Uh, STS, uh, 98 happens. Uh, Atlantis arrives with, uh, the Destiny module and, and Destiny is gigantic compared to Unity. I mean, it's, it's just a bit bigger than twice the, the length. Uh, same diameter, obviously. Um, Destiny arrived at ISS on the 9th of February and it left on the 16th of February. So by, by the end of ISS construction, shuttle, you know, always docked to the forward end of Harmony, which went on the other side of, of Destiny here, uh, to, you know, docking with PMA2, which is what was stuck uh, on the front there. But now they, they want to put something on the forward node, uh, of Unity. So they actually docked to PMA3, which was on Unity's, uh, nadir port, uh, at that time. Um, so kind of a, an interesting, uh, arrangement. Um, just it, it, you know, when you're used to this very regimented way that, that we see shuttle interacting with ISS. Um, is it also, the Nadir port or is it the Zenith? No, it's the Nadir. It, um, it at this Nader, point, yeah. yeah, at this point, uh, Zenith was already occupied by um, Z1, um, Z1 and, and P6 on top of it. Um, and, and I guess that's a that's a good next thing to mention is that um, the truss was not extending laterally; it just extended vertically at this point, and the P6 truss um, was sat on top of it with. Um, one pair of solar, uh, solar array wings sticking out sideways in the, in the direction that the truss would eventually extend. Um, so kind of a funny little baby ISS at the time. So, uh, they, they docked to the nadir side and the first thing or the, the first bit of rearranging that had to happen was getting PMA, th- uh, two out of the way. Um, because PMA2 was at that point docked from Unity's forward uh, uh, common birthing mechanism port, um, and they, you know, they want to put something there. So they actually took PMA2 and moved it to a holding point on the truss. And, and you might wonder why they didn't just put it on another CBM, because Unity had uh, you know, four radial CBMs, but it actually turns out that those, we, we call them CBMs, common birthing mechanisms, but CBMs are not created equal. Um, they actually have an amount of non-androgyny, I guess. Is there a better word for that? And I didn't go look this up. And so I'm talking off the cuff. So maybe this is going to come back to bite me. Yeah. Colin says gendered. Yeah, maybe. Um, um, the <laughs> great example like compatibility, of compatibility, if you want to just call it that, right? Compatibility, <laughs> sure. But if I remember correctly, they wouldn't have actually been able to move PMA to those side facing ports just based on the CBM configuration. Also, you know, shuttle sitting right there. So maybe it's not the best place to put something. Um, uh, but, uh, until I, until I was, uh, doing this research, I actually, I had totally forgotten that PMAs were ever temporarily, uh, stowed on the trust. I, I think that's such an interesting, uh, an interesting idea to have this pressure. You know, it, you can pressurize this thing. So it's like this little bubble that's just like stuck on the side of your trust. Um, but anyway, um, once they got into their first EVA, um, they were get, they were ready to, to actually do some work with Destiny. So on EVA were, uh, Tom Jones and Bob Kirby. So then, uh, Marsha Ivins was inside shuttle operating SRMS. So, you know, 
for all intents and purposes, she's uh, the third EVA member, right? So they uh, pulled the uh, the cover flaps off of Destiny and uh, disconnected it from uh, shuttle the shuttle bay because it's got uh, power and cooling lines going to it. So they disconnect those and they pull it out of the bay and they dock it to the forward node of Unity. And in doing so, they increased the living space of ISS by 41%. Um, it's pretty drastic. And that all comes down to how big Destiny is compared to Unity. You know, if you think about Destiny as being the second, um, uh, US module, uh, it doesn't seem like the, the livable space should go up by that much, but it really does. Um, and then they got to work, um, attaching the power and data and cooling lines, uh, across this new, uh, this new docking gap, if you think of it that way. Um, while Kerbeam was hooking up the cooling lines, though, there was an, an ammonia leak. Um, and, and it wasn't a drastic leak. It was just a couple of, you know, frozen ammonia crystals that drifted out and they were able to shut down the amount of, of leakage that was happening. Um, but ammonia is really nasty. We, we don't want to just, um, ignore this leak. So, uh, hooking up um, the, this cabling was, was the last step in this EVA. Um, and so it's lucky that this happened, uh, at the very end, I guess, because they can finish up what they're working on and then immediately go into decontamination procedures. These decontamination procedures added more than an hour. Um, and on top of that, uh, added more than an hour to the EVA, but they actually had to push back the schedule by two hours. They went to bed, uh, two hours later that day. Um, just, you know, you, this is the kind of hiccup that really throws a wrench in your plans. Um, so to do this decontamination, uh, they did a 30 minute, uh, bakeout maneuver where basically, um, Kerbeam just stood in the sun or floated in the sunlight doing his own little barbecue roll, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, <laughs> making sure that every bit of him could, uh, be heated up. Um, and, and while he's doing that, uh, Jones comes in and is, is brushing him down and trying to make sure that no, uh, um, no little particles are stuck in a crevice anywhere. And then once they, uh, got back into the shuttle airlock, they actually did a longer, uh, repress maneuver. Yeah. <laughs> Colin in the chat says spacesuit tan lines. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, they, they did a, a longer, um, repressurization, uh, sequence where they actually brought, um, the airlock up to partial pressure and then vented it again. Um, so that, you know, when you bring it up to pressure, anything that didn't melt in the sun could, um, sublime off. I guess, well, maybe it wouldn't even sublime. Maybe it just melt and then evaporate, but it, you know, go into a gaseous form mm-hmm. and they can dump it and then repressurize the, the crew inside shuttle. Um, that was Ken Cockrell, uh, Mark Polanski, and of course, uh, Marsha Ivins, who had been doing all the hard work. Um, they all wore O2 masks, um, and they wore them for 20 minutes, which, um, seems to be the, the period of time that they were, uh, expecting the shuttle life support systems to be able to clear out any potential, um, ammonia contamination. I like the, the clue comes in here. I, I like to think of the human nose as, you know, the, the best rapid response, always on gas chemical analyzer on the planet or, or off the planet in this case. Um, and so they made sure to do sniff tests, um, to, to make sure that they uh, didn't have any ammonia floating around or at least not enough ammonia to, to trigger the human nose. And the clue comes from the fact that they didn't smell any ammonia this whole time. So it seems like the bakeout procedure, uh, and the, the repressurization, the airlock did the trick. This isn't, you know, the last time that we've had, uh, ammonia crystals flying around, uh, mm-hmm. during an EVA. But, uh, as far as I can tell, it was, uh, the, the first time that ISS had to deal with it. So that was the first EVA. There, there were two additional EVAs and I just want to talk about them briefly. The second EVA, uh, was used to move the PMA2 from its stowage on Z1 to the forward end of Destiny. Um, and then they also installed a power and data grapple fixture on Destiny, which is, is fun because, um, SSRMS, not 
SRMS, Dennis fixed me on this one. SRMS is a shuttle remote manipulator system. SSRMS is the space station remote manipulator system. So Canadarm2 wouldn't be delivered to ISS uh, for another year or so. So they, they've got a, a PDGF ready to go when it gets there. And I, I'm not 100% sure why it wasn't uh, installed for launch. I'm assuming that it's just because it's, you know, a fairly delicate piece of equipment. They wanted to be able to do all this manipulation and flying around and and movement without uh, the PGDF in danger. The third EVA um, had a lot of little tiny tasks. They released gimbal locks on one of the spare antennas so that they could uh, connect it up and, and use it in the future. Um, and, and that's for uh, station-to-ground comms. Um, they double-checked all the connections on Destiny. Uh, I think it's kind of cool that they hooked them up in the first EVA and then gave it two days of just sitting around before mm. they uh, went and double checked it. I, I imagine that that time period was, uh, was not unintentional. Then they also deployed one of the radiators on P6. So, uh, P6 and, well, I guess it's, uh, P5, P6, S5, and S6 all have radiators on them. Technically. Oh, you're right. It's, it's P6 and P4, right? Right. Fives are kind of just little nubs that take the, the kind of ball joints for the um, arrays. That yeah. makes them look like rectangles so you yeah. can keep the truss going. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But anyway, so you have uh, two uh, two different pairs of, of uh, radiators on each of these segments. Um, and when I was reading some literature, they were talking about this being an early external active thermal control system radiator. So EATCS, EEATCS, um, EATCS is what, what they use today. And so I, I was trying to figure out what the heck was going on. Why, why are they calling this an early, uh, version? Um, and I was like, did they really have a different radiator on there? Um, one of the really cool things that you can find, uh, on, on Wikipedia, I believe is where it's actually hosted. There's this animation video of, uh, ISS. Actually, no, it's gotta, it's gotta be a NASA, um, resource. But anyway, th there's this neat video that I'll try to remember to throw into the show notes, um, of ISS being assembled. And as they're going, they're constantly deploying and retracting solar arrays and radiators. And it's, it's this fun, uh, very, you know, like, anthill busyness kind of appearance. And so I was shocked to find out that they had different radiators. It turns out they don't have different radiators. Um, the E EATCS um, was actually um, not a, a different set of radiators. It was actually a different set of pumps and tubes and everything. Um, and what's really cool is that the difference between the two systems is negligible. They, they used as many of the same parts as they could. And now the EEATCS uh, equipment is still up there and it's used as on-orbit replacement spares uh, for the current active EATCS. Um, I, I, that it's very satisfying and, and cool uh, to me that they, that they do that. And uh, it was very frustrating to me that they gave them totally different names when mm -hmm. it was the same, <laughs> the, the self same radiators. Um, they also did a quick uh, inspection of the solar array assembly. And they also did uh, an immobile EVA crew member, uh, like fireman's carry test. Hmm. Um, I, I didn't look too much into it, but basically, you know, one of them played dead and the other one hauled them back to the airlock just to make sure they could no do it. No kidding. <laughs> um, and that, that's a really important thing to actually run through. Even if you, yeah. you know, pretend to do that in the neutral buoyancy lab, doing it on orbit is, is a really good idea, I think, because that's not something that you want to find out that there's a hiccup in, you know, you want to make sure that you know that this can be done without any issues. Uh, it's really a, a critical ability to, to have. Okay. And then, and then before we take off, I just wanted to point out that this was one of the shuttles that landed in California, Edwards Air Force Base. Um, looking at the date, February of 2001. And I believe that my family moved out of Edwards 
in like June or July of 2001. So this, I probably heard this, uh, this double sonic boom as it re-entered the atmosphere. Um, but by that mm. point I, I didn't pay attention to shuttle landings. You know, the, the first couple that I remember as a kid, I was very excited about. And after that, I, um, just, I wasn't connected enough with space to, to appreciate it or to even, you know, take the time to step outside and listen for it. And I'm just kicking myself. Uh, I, I had such a, a wonderful opportunity in front of me. Um, it's one of the reasons why I love space so much now is because, you know, there's a little bit of regret, uh, motivating my, uh, my, my love, you know, yeah. <laughs> kind of silly, but yeah, I, I feel that too. Alrighty. So that's this week in space flight history. Next week is the 16th through the 22nd of February. And this is Dennis. Do you have a clue for us? Indeed I do. Next week in 1990, potato in the tailpipe. So this might be a reference to, you know, French fries in space or something far more, uh, I guess. Don't say delicious because there's nothing more delicious than French fries. Well, I, I can't imagine they would taste good if they were in a tailpipe of a car. I don't, I don't think you should eat that. But <laughs> True, true, true. <laughs> I've never had tailpipe cooked French fries. Um, He's smoky. You know? Well, now now we need to get in touch with uh, Rich Rebuilds and get him. He already installed a pizza oven in a car. We need to get him to install a, a tiny little oven in a fake tailpipe on a Tesla. Yeah. That, that's food safe. I think I would eat French fries from a Tesla. That sounds worse. That just sounds safer. No carbon monoxide or other carcinogens in there. So, um, but yeah. So who knows what this clue is, is all about? But if you think you know, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. All right, upcoming space flight events now, and we got a couple launches and one other thing a docking. So what's the first launch? Well, our first launch is a Falcon 9 Block 5 that'll be taking Starlink 19. Those numbers are getting higher and higher. <laughs> uh, so, right, this is going to be another batch of 60 satellites uh, for the SpaceX's mega constellation. And uh, again, that's going to be February 12th uh, at 0525 UTC, an instantaneous uh, window, and launching out of Cape Canaveral at a uh, Space Launch Complex 40. All right, and then next up is a Soyuz 2.1A. So that is launching the Progress MS-16, or this is the 77th Progress. So this is a, yeah, a resupply to the International Space Station, launching from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan as usual, and that is launching at 0445 UTC. And of course, that's an instantaneous launch window. So pretty straightforward. And then, Ben, you have the docking of that. Yep. Two days later, on Wednesday the 17th, um, it will, the coverage on NASA TV will start at 12.30 a.m. Eastern, uh, and the docking is scheduled at 1.20 a.m. Eastern. So, uh, you, you gotta be a night owl, uh, to catch this one. <laughs> and, uh, can I just start a little tidbit of information? Mm -hmm. This, uh, MS-16 is gonna be the one that when it does unlock later this year, it's gonna be taking peers with it oh good mm. good thank you that's a good tidbit oh and i, I guess you know it's beyond uh it, this will happen after next week's show but it's worth pointing out just to make sure that everybody has as much warning as as humanly possible uh perseverance is going to be landing on thursday the 18th and uh that's going to be happening in the afternoon for the u.s uh or, or for the americas and that that's Really going to be exciting. I can't wait yeah. to watch that one. <laughs> That's going to be um, cool. I wonder if there are going to be any Mohawks in attendance. Well, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Cool. All right. And so let's do with the show then. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and a Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing and also sail the seven seas with us this Friday <laughs> at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern uh, yes. as we play Sea of Thieves. Yes, yes, um, yes. Check our Twitter or Reddit for links. Uh, we're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, that's all. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.